And then the third is reminding of the journey. So there are different steps in the journey. Three months in, you're going to be getting 50 visits a day and the paid team is going to be getting 10,000 and you're going to say SEO takes time. And then six months in, you're getting more traffic, but the conversion rate's not that high because you didn't focus on conversion rate. And then you say, well, we need to now focus on conversion rate and then we get more conversions. So there are these different milestones throughout that SEO journey and you need to keep repeating over and over again to everyone, where are you on that journey and what are the next steps? And don't conclude too early that things are not working. They will work if we hit these different milestones. Hi, and welcome to the Optimize Podcast. My name is Nate Matherson, and I'm your host. On this weekly podcast, we sit down with some of the smartest minds in content marketing and SEO. Our goal is to give you perspective and insights on what's moving the needle in organic search. Today, I'm thrilled to sit down with Ethan Smith. Ethan is one of the best in SEO, and he's currently the CEO of Graphite, an international growth SEO agency that builds scalable growth engines. He and the Graphite team have built and scaled organic search strategies across a variety of industries, and they've worked with some incredible companies too. Companies like Webflow, Upwork, BetterUp, and Masterclass, to name just a few. In our episode today, Ethan and I go deep on building topical SEO. We chat about one of my favorite topics being internal linking, and I know it's one of Ethan's favorite topics too. We chat about building backlinks, the importance of it. We chat about title tags and how you can optimize them and so much more in this episode. And this episode of the Optimize Podcast is brought to you by Positional. If you don't know by now, my name's Nate and I'm one of the co-founders of Positional. And I'm really excited to announce that we just launched our content analytics tool set. This has very quickly become my favorite feature. It's one that I've wanted for the last 10 years and it's really effective in identifying which pages on your site users might be having a low quality experience on. What we do is we track metrics like scroll depth, bounce rate, and time on page to score your pages and then allow you to go deeper to see where within a piece of content, for example, which paragraph is causing people to leave or where, for example, you might want to add a call to action within that page. This tool set is called Content Analytics. It's our newest feature. I'm stoked about it and you should be too. Ethan, thank you so much for coming on the Optimize podcast. Thank you for having me. So the first question I ask all of our guests is, how did you get into SEO? So I started my career as a user researcher and then got into user experience design and was uh, building. I thought that you build great products and then people would just sort of show up and start using them and tell everyone about them. But it turns out that that's not true. So uh, I got into SEO by necessity because I needed to find a way for us to, to grow our audience. It was essentially SEO and paid were the two options and paid was tough to get to work. And so we turned to SEO and this is in 2007. And today I have to ask, it's been a volatile few months across the SERPs. There's been like three or four algorithm updates in the last few months. I've, I've started to lose count. And you at Graphite, you work with a variety of different clients across different industries. What are you seeing? Like, are there any kind of key insights you've had given like how volatile the last few months have been in the SERPs? I haven't seen any substantial changes algorithmically or uh, strategically. I've seen some sites go up and down, but the similar stuff that worked before works now, which is content that fulfills the intent of the whole keyword cluster 
avoiding a lot of scraped content, a lot of duplicated AI generated high plagiarism rated type content and uh, useful content. We've always focused on useful content. So we haven't seen a change of having bad content, not perform well, because we don't make bad content. But um, that that is a general trend that has happened over the past few years and over the past few months. And I was on your LinkedIn earlier. And for all of our listeners, if you're not already following Ethan on LinkedIn, you should be. And I saw that you had a really interesting post. You know, our customers always ask me like, what is fantastic content? Because I'll tell them like, you should create fantastic content. But I saw on LinkedIn that you said that Google wants good content um, and that good content actually has a science behind it. It's not subjective or ambiguous. And my first question to you is like, what is the science behind good content or helpful content? Yes. So I think there's a few different factors, but the the two that are relevant to Google are the content scoring and the user engagement signal. And then the third would be what's subjectively high quality, useful content from a craftsmanship perspective. For the content scoring, what Google's looking for is comprehensiveness and information gain. So for comprehensiveness, for something like five-year plan, not only do I want to fulfill the intent of five-year plan, I want to fulfill the intent of all the different keywords that five-year plan ranks for, like template and examples. And personal versus business. Uh, so the more that I cover the intent of my entire keyword cluster, the better. And uh, Google will also look for certain co-occurring terms with five-year plan, like career planning and stuff like that. And so the more that you talk about these things, the better. From a content pers- scoring perspective, there is the keyword-based uh, approach, meaning add the phrase uh, career seven times, which is fine. But the way that Google actually works is layers of abstraction above that. And there's you know some discussion about entities, but that's one, it's, it's a little bit more complex than that, but it's essentially something beyond just a keyword. And Google wants you to discuss the concept behind the different keywords. So if it's something around key, career planning, don't just list career and planning six times. It's describe the, the subject that career planning is about. So that's about cover everything in keyword cluster. Then there's information gain, which essentially means add something new that somebody else hasn't talked about that's useful and relevant. So if you have some unique take that others haven't discussed, you should add that. And I think a misapplication of a lot of the SEO tools is that everyone's trying to be more typical and as similar to everyone else as possible and not unique and not add a diverse set of thoughts, there's actually a benefit to that. How do you do that? You you use uh, expertise and intuition to say, well, I think that this other subtopic uh, is relevant to five-year planning. So it's both. It's cover everything and then also add something new. So that's on the content scoring side. Then on the user engagement side, it's have stuff that people want to share that has good engagement. By good engagement, I mean long dwell time, converting, signing up for a service, not going back to Google and going to another article. Google wants you to find all your answers in one place. So the engagement signals are related to that. And the more useful your content is, the the more likely you are to get shared and have an engagement. And then most importantly, you don't just want to visit, you want someone to buy your product. Even if you have a high rank, if nobody's buying your product, then the visit didn't matter. And so just from a business perspective, the better the content covers everything and is high quality and useful, the more people are going to be excited about using your product and the more likely you are to get a conversion. So you actually make the most out of that visit. On the first side of things, I I agree with you. I always say to our customers, like you want to make your content uniquely helpful. And I think there are a lot of different ways to do that. To you, does like 
adding something new or making your content uniquely helpful? Is that typically words on a page or would, or could you also accomplish that with like an interesting graphic or video or some other medium? Like what's your approach with your clients typically? All of that, I would say that from a content scoring perspective, it's words from an engagement and usefulness perspective, it would be media and media images, videos significantly increase engagement. And, and so I would, uh, I would definitely add that as well. Yeah. You'd think those two things would be pretty positively correlated. Like if you're saying something that's actually very unique and helpful and has real expertise and authority, then it would also, I'd think, have a pretty positive impact on you know all of those user experience metrics that you mentioned, like dwell time and return to search rate. And are we actually driving conversions from this piece of content? That makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I heard you mention like search intent before. I think that search intent is often a difficult concept to understand, even for the best of us SEOs. Uh, to you, like what is search intent? And like, how do you go about identifying it before you create these pieces of content? Yeah, so the search intent, typically, you can get a pretty good sense of the search intent, if you know the different keywords that you're targeting. So the example that I use is that uh, BetterUp was creating a, a an article about five year plan. And before we published that article, and if you look at the keywords under five year plan, it's things like five year plan template example, personal versus professional career planning, stuff like that. So it's very clear that this is somebody who is planning the next five years of their career and they want examples and templates. The results that we're ranking were uh, Stalin's five-year plan for the Soviet Union. So clearly the intent was not being fulfilled. And part of that was because there weren't there was not content that existed for this. And so that was the only option. But it's pretty obvious if you look through the set of keywords that you're targeting that people are looking for, they want to plan their career over the next five years. They want useful templates and examples to help them do that. So you can just go through the different keywords and get a pretty good sense about what, what the user intent is. The other thing that I would say is that a lot of times people will look at one keyword or two keywords, like five-year plan. And if you don't look at the whole keyword cluster, you're going to miss different subtopics. So even if you know it's uh, an article about planning your career, if you don't know that people want examples and templates and you don't have those, then you don't fulfill the intent of the people looking for examples and templates. So it's important to look through your whole keyword cluster of many keywords down, not just the first one or five. I'm a big believer when building my websites that to become like the true topical authority or like the most topically relevant source on a topic, we need to cover like every question someone has within that universe. Um, I like to think of like my websites as search engines for like that given topic area. But I've had a lot of SEOs like disagree with me on that lately. And they'll say like, Nate, you're spending way too much time creating content around different topics that you'll likely never be able to convert a customer from, for example, like a how to guide, or that is maybe a little too evergreen, like versus like, something that's more down the funnel, kind of approaching a conversion. When you're thinking about like building topical authority and relevance, and really like owning that cluster, as you've described, do you go and actually create like the higher in the funnel medium of the funnel type pieces of content as a way to do that knowing that like, they might not be that effective from a conversion standpoint? Yes, for multiple reasons. Uh, the first reason is that if you have content that's upper funnel, and by upper funnel, I mean, maybe someone's not ready to buy a camera, but they're researching cameras, or they're researching photography, and they'll eventually want to buy a camera. That's a valuable visit because that user built a relationship with your brand. And typically, you need many different touch points with the user before 
you're ready to buy. And then once you are ready to buy, then you remember that brand and you say, well, everyone knows that this brand is popular and good for cameras. Therefore, I will be more likely to use that brand. But it's very hard to measure and attribute that touch point that happened six months ago, 20 visits ago. But there's still value there. I was just going to say, do you find that by driving traffic to some of those like higher in the funnel type evergreen pages that it actually then will have a positive impact on the rankings of your pages that are maybe a little bit further down the funnel, but still in that that topic category or cluster on the site? Yes. So part of how topical authority works is that if I rank for an up of funnel query about Nikon and I get good engagement for that, but no conversions, Google will say that I have more topical authority for anything related to Nikon. And if I'm then searching for a product from Nikon and high intent and likelihood to buy, I am going to rank higher for that transactional end of funnel term because I got good engagement for this up of funnel term. So up of funnel, high engagement traffic for a topic area causes higher rank of terms that are at the end of of the journey. And I've heard you say that building topical SEO or your topical SEO strategy is different from a keyword-based strategy. Could you help me understand exactly what that means? Yeah, so for five-year plan, there's probably a thousand different keywords that we're actually targeting. And there's all kinds of useful information if you go through all thousand and, and different themes, like I mentioned, personal versus professional examples, templates, stuff like that. And if you just look at five-year plan, you don't know any of that. So you're not fulfilling the intent of all the various subtopics and keywords underneath that. So it's especially important. The second thing that's important is that the search volume is the sum of that entire set of a thousand terms, not just one term. So your prioritization is going to be way off if you only look at one and you're going to miss a bunch of topics that are popular uh, that you didn't know about. And that's probably why we saw that no one had an article about five-year plans because the search volume for five-year plan was not that high, but for the whole keyword cluster, it was very high. And do you see topical authority or like topical SEO as something you need to protect on your website? And the reason I ask that question is going back to algorithm updates, I've seen some of the websites that have been negatively impacted, at least from my view, have tended to like stray too far away from like their core topic areas or the pages like they actually care about driving conversions on their site. Have you seen like an instance or observed a situation where like a company might lose their topical SEO by going like too broad across a set of keywords that they might not actually care about? I have not seen straying away from the core focus causing a uh, harm to the core focus. I have seen you rank for a topic and then suddenly you don't rank for that topic anymore, whether that be because competition came in or there was an algorithm update or something else. And I think it's important to always monitor your top topics and your topical area and look for things dropping and then try to address that, try to understand why it dropped and address it and get your rank back. But I haven't seen a focus on some other area cause harm to the rest of the site. And there's so much for us to do every day as content marketers, SEOs. Uh, And I was on the Graphite site earlier, of which we're going to include a link to in the show notes. And you say that 95% of the SEO work that people do has low impact. Um, And it's the 5% that actually matters. Uh, What's the 5%? Like, what should I not be focusing on, I guess is my question. And what is that 5% that actually matters for like a content SEO team? Yeah, so what we've seen is what we call the SEO death spiral, where a company hires an SEO agency or an in-house SEO, and you come up with a strategy, and you're excited, and you launch five things, 
And, and they're all correct things like your alt tag was broken and there's a redirect chain and there's a soft 404 and you change all those things and then nothing happens. And then the engineer asks, why am I working on this SEO stuff versus something else that is impactful? And then they uh, stop working on that. And then you go six months, 12 months and nothing has happened and you've gotten no traffic. And then you go hire the next SEO agency because you want a new strategy and then they have the same thing. And you have this vicious cycle where you keep on churning different people, different agencies with this SEO death spiral. And then nobody believes what they're hearing uh, from SEOs, especially the engineers. And the reason why is because that's the 95% of stuff that is true, but low low impact or zero impact. The stuff that's high impact is understanding where's your topical authority, creating content around that, fulfilling the intent of each topic entirely, and then a few technical SEO things like cross-linking. Also related to topical authority, the majority of articles don't perform. So you might write 100 articles and five of them perform. And this is actually the, the true distribution of a lot of sites is 5% of the URLs drive 95% of the impact. So it's not 80-20, it's 95-5. And that's because you didn't know which five would perform. And if you knew which five would perform, then you could spend all your money in those five. And that comes back to topical authority and fulfilling the intent of the whole uh, keyword cluster. So if you know where your topical authority is and you pick new topics that are adjacent or close to that area, those will be much more likely to rank. And we actually did a study showing that high topical authority topics uh, get traffic seven times faster than low topical authority topics. It's pretty dramatic. And then again, if you can rank for this thing, then you cover all the different subtopics and fulfill the intent of the whole keyword cluster, then you're way more likely to perform. And again, the, the, the order of magnitude is 7x, 10x. It's not t another 20%. So it makes all the difference. So that's the 5% of selecting the topics, creating the content that fulfills that, and then picking the small number of tasks that actually drive impact. And that would be my biggest complaint with a lot of SEO agencies is in the first like two to three months, they'll be doing like audits for what is probably like an early stage startup that doesn't really need an audit or like I could do an audit in like two hours. And I agree with you, like fixing a single like soft 404 is not actually going to move the chains forward. Um, and I always like to say to our customers that like 80% of the work you need to do is like doing two things, right? Like picking the right topics to write about and creating awesome content. And that's where I spend like most of my time as an SEO myself, I actually personally have never really worried too much about like the nitty gritty audit type activities with my websites. Um, but back to your point on uh, building topical SEO and authority, how important are backlinks in all of this? If I've got a website and maybe I want to launch like a new product line and I want to build out like a portfolio of content in a new topic area, like are backlinks also pretty important in terms of building that topical SEO or is it just a content focus? No, backlinks are very important. So uh, one of the key innovations with Google early on was PageRank and PageRank is based on how many other sites cite you, you, you are more important, similar to academic publications. The more citations your publication gets, the more important your publication is. And so that's what PageRank is based on and that's still important. Uh, but now it's more complex and more topical. So more complex, I generalize it to authority. What's your total authority? And then what's your authority within particular topical areas? So authority now is backlinks. It's number of websites linking to you, referring domains. It's whether or not you had content that went viral and got a lot of shares. It's do you get a lot of email traffic? So all these different things tell Google 
how important uh, and how large is your website. Then you can apply that to a topical area. So not only how many websites link to you, but how many link websites link to you about certain topical areas. So BetterUp, for example, is not going to rank for chicken recipes, even though their domain authority is high because they're not a recipe site. And Food Network is not going to rank for career coaching because that's not what they're about, even though they have a lot of domain authority. So it's both a combination of authority and how it's applied topically. And then specifically with backlinks, the anchor text uh, informs a lot of what your site is about. So if you have a lot of anchor text links with project management software, career coaching or things like that, that's what you'll get the topical authority for. There are a lot of ways to build backlinks. How are you building backlinks in 2023 or what's working for your clients? I am not building any backlinks. I uh, try to focus on companies that have some critical mass of backlinks and then uh, create content. So usually I'll aim for at least 200 referring websites. It depends, uh, but that, you know, for, for our uh, graphite works with larger companies. And so we need larger impact. So we usually aim for at least 200 referring domains, but the more referring domains, the better. And then if you select the right topics that are in your topical area and you rank for those and the content fulfills the intent, then that traffic will uh, have the second order effect of getting a bunch of backlinks as a result of that. That's not to say that it's not useful to do purposeful link building, but I personally don't enjoy doing that. So I try to just leverage the authority that people have rather than building backlinks. And when you say 200 referring domains, that's generally to like a domain level. Is that right? Domain level. And it's a rule of thumb. It's not a precise, it's not a precise rule. You could have fewer domains and uh, maybe you're a really niche site in a particular area. But if, if you want it to be easy uh, to, to uh, get traffic with, with content you're launching, that's usually what we aim for. When I first started in this industry, we found that it was very effective to build backlinks at specific pages we wanted to move the needle on. Uh, but then it was somewhere in and around like 20. 16, 17, 18, we found that like building page level backlinks wasn't as impactful as it previously had been. And that like a domain level authority is actually in our view became more important than like a specific page level authority for any given one page on your site. Would you agree that at a domain level backlinks are maybe more important than at a page level? Or do you still think that at a page level backlinks are quite important? I've seen it at the domain level rather than the page level. My assumption is that at the page level is slightly better, but at the domain level is where I've seen the main impact. Uh, I can give an example where we created some viral content about jello shots and we got about 4 million Facebook likes and a bunch of backlinks. The rest of the domain for the history of the company then ranked for things like vodka and whiskey, and they were not linked to from the jello shots page. But essentially this one page got a significant amount of jello shot backlinks. And then the entire rest of the domain did really well for these alcohol-related terms that were adjacent to Jello shots. So that's generally what I've seen as domain-level authority versus page-level authority. I've heard you mention a few other off-page signals, like email traffic for one or shares on Facebook or whatever other social platform it might be. Do you see those off-page signals, not backlinks, being like as valuable as backlinks? Or uh, how do you think about other off-page signals that are not backlinks? I have better data, better attribution data for backlinks and shares. I have less precise, rigorous data for traffic. So I, I, I'm not sure, but I have less confidence in that particular channel. But I do think it matters. And it also causes more backlinks and shares. Yeah, highly correlated. And I know that you love internal linking as much as I do. And I saw on LinkedIn recently, you posted that in order to reach the full traffic potential, our research shows that more links, internal links are better 
and that there is an inflection point usually around seven plus links or that seven internal links drive substantially more traffic than only one or two internal links. I would love to learn a little bit more about that research you did uh, around internal linking and, and the importance of it. Yes. So thinking about the 5%, the two most consistent reproducible quick wins in SEO are adding better cross-linking and tweaking your title tags. So we always start off projects doing that. It almost always works, not always, but almost always. So Google needs many different paths within your site to discover all the pages on your site. And what typically happens with cross-linking is that cross-links focus on popular URLs or recent URLs. And uh, if you have a site with a thousand pages and you link to the five most popular, the five most recent, then that means that 995 URLs don't get any links. So then you add related links and related links also skew to popular articles. People who viewed this viewed that means that you probably viewed it a lot and the stuff that you didn't view doesn't show up then. Then you can do facet-based links. Like this article is part of this tag. Like this is a food article. But again, those tag pages then are going to skew to the popular ones. So all these different typical linking uh, algorithms skew towards a small subset of pages. And then you have a bunch of URLs on your site with zero links, one link, two link. Google can find those pages, but it doesn't have many paths to find those pages, which means that the crawl rate's lower. It doesn't rank as high as it could. So the more that you can spread links to all of your pages, those pages will perform better. So on average, we've seen an inflection point of traffic per uh, associating traffic with number of internal links. Uh, we've seen an inflection point around seven. So seven is probably double better than five, and that's double better than one. It depends. So it's not always a perfect math equation when we know exactly what will happen. But on average, we've seen an inflection point around seven or so. So we'll usually aim for five to 10 uh, internal links per URL. And how important is the anchor text on those internal links? I'm not sure. Uh, we typically will show the title of the page. We've done a little bit of testing of tweaking the the anchor text to be more unique. So the five-year plan article, we can maybe link to 10 times and show template and examples a few times, and perhaps that would cause it to rank better for template and examples. But I haven't rigorously tested that, so I'm not sure. Do you think there's any downside in using the same exact match anchor text across all seven links, or do you want to vary it at least for the sake of varying it? I have tested never changing it and have that performed well. So I know that having it stay the same performs well, but I don't have data about changing it and whether or not that's better. As far as internal links go, I always get asked this question. Can you add too many internal links to a page, to another page? I'd be curious to get your approach. You can add too many links on one page, uh, but you can't link to a URL too many times on your site. So if you have a, a URL that's linked to in your footer and you're linking to it 100,000 times, that's fine. Uh, if you have a page with 100,000 links on your page, that's not a very good page. And that page will probably not do well. Uh, I'm working with a company where we have too many. It's essentially a page with thousands of links. And it's not performing well. And that's, uh, that's a lot of links. So usually a pages will have 50 to maybe 500 links on, its, uh, on the page. That's probably fine, but as you get into the thousands and the page is just an enormous uh, page just with a bunch of links, that's not ideal. It's unusual for, for a site to have that. So it's sort of a, an edge case, but um, typically people are, don't have too many internal links. Typically they have too few. 
Transitioning a little bit to programmatic SEO, this is not a space where I have a whole lot of experience, uh, but I do know that site structure and internal linking is, is critical when it comes to programmatic SEO. I, I was actually on Zapier's website the other day and I, I was just observing how great of a job they do, like connecting like the entire website through internal linking and site architecture and making it really easy to go like three, four levels deep with internal links to basically every page you would want to find on their site. Do you have a lot of experience working on programmatic SEO with your clients? Is that something they're thinking about? Yes. And I think what you're describing is that a large programmatic site has a tree structure or an organization of the pages. Does that, is that correct? That's, that's exactly right. So interestingly, I have found that that's not important. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it, but what I've found is to just have many paths across all your different sections of your site and they don't need to be organized or in a tree structure. So I found that to be true. Now that doesn't mean that it's not useful to have structure because that helps users navigate your site and, and find other similar related content with, from an SEO perspective. It actually doesn't matter at all to have that structure. The key is that if it's not a tree structure, there's still at least some sort of structure that allows Google's crawlers to identify that these pages are important on your site. Yes, Google's crawlers need to have many paths to all your URLs. They don't need to know about structure. They don't need to know that two pages are related to each other. They just need many paths to discover and crawl all the different pages on your site. On the programmatic side of things, are there like one or two big mistakes you'll see clients in the past have, have made or are making? Yes, many mistakes. So mistake number one is to have too many URLs that are not useful or similar. So an example would be if you're an Upwork and you have every single variation of a product manager, like senior product manager, product manager one, product manager two, product manager three, and then you take every single small city in the United States and have a page for all of those. And you maybe have product manager level three in obscure city in Kansas, or all this obscure cities in Kansas, you don't need that level of granularity. And now you have so many different pages and the jobs are probably very similar to each other. So you don't want every, you don't want every single permutation. We also see this with uh, e-commerce where every single way that you could possibly search for a camera has its own page and it's the same cameras on many of the different pages. So you want to uh, maintain your indexation logic and say that and this goes back to topics. I don't need a thousand pages for all the different keywords in five-year plan. I need one. So you want to cluster your keywords for programmatic as well and only have the programmatic pages that go after topics that have many different keywords that you want to want to rank for and have search volume. And these pages are not almost duplicates of other pages on your site. So the indexation logic is one mistake. The, uh, the second mistake is having very similar content across your different programmatic pages. So again, if you have, uh, let's say that you're house.com and there's a thousand different ways to search for towels, but they're all the same towels, then the page is essentially the same page. And then you have a lot of duplicate content within your site. So that's the second mistake. And then the third mistake is that you haven't launched pages for all the different topics that you could go after. Uh, so, so you have gaps in, in where you can uh, find your different topics. And then the fourth mistake is uh, you need more content. So we were working with Honey, there's only so many coupons we can show for Pizza Hut, but people have questions about the rewards program and whether or not there are employee discounts and things like that. And if you just list more coupons, you don't address the intent of that. And so for programmatic pages, editorial can also actually make a, a really big difference. And so finding out what the subtopics are for programmatic pages, just like you did for articles and adding content, which might be editorial, uh, is the fourth mistake or opportunity. 
I'm going to agree with you. And then I have a question. I agree that creating like the editorial content strategy around the programmatic strategy is quite important for building topical SEO in your words. I think that's what you've described. Is that accurate? Yes. And my question is, how do you know that something is going wrong? Is it indexing? Like is indexing the leading indicator that there might be something funky going on with your programmatic pages? There's a whole series of, uh, there's a life cycle for programmatic. And I did an article with first round review on this uh, a few years ago. So if you just search for first round review, my name, you'll find it, but there's different steps to each. So the first step would be, is the page getting crawled? So if it's not getting crawled, then you don't need to know about indexation or page quality or any of that because Google never found it. The first thing that you want to do is look to see, are your pages getting crawled? And if it's not getting crawled, the uh, diagnosis of that is probably something around cross-linking or tags, uh, like indexation tags or redirects, HTTP status code. So that's step one. Are your pages getting uh, crawled? Step two is, are they getting indexed? So if they're getting crawled, but they're not getting indexed, it's probably not a, a cross-link problem. It's probably something else. So it might be that the it's probably something related to your tags uh, or like a, a no-index tag or canonical loop with a redirect or something like that. Or the content's really, really thin. Like there's only five words on the page. Then there's, it got indexed, but it's not getting traffic. So if it's not getting traffic, then it's probably not your HTTP status codes. It's something related to what's on the page. So it's probably going to be the content's not fulfilling the intent or uh, it, it could, I mean, any of these steps could be cross-linking as well, or the page isn't that useful, or it's actually ranking really well, but nobody's searching for it because it's an obscure city, obscure city in Kansas. So you want to look at each step of your life cycle of crawl index and traffic to diagnose whether or not something's going wrong. I do want to come back to something you mentioned earlier. I heard you mention like AI generated content. Is that something we should be using on our websites? How are you thinking about AI-generated content with your clients? I would say that you should use AI-generated content and you just want it to be useful and unique. So AI-generated content has several problems now, but you can work through them and it'll improve over time. So the first problem is that AI-generated content is pulling other content on the web and remixing it. And so the level of duplication can be high and the plagiarism score can be high. And Google doesn't want a sentence that's almost identical to some other sentence with a few words changed. And so that's one thing to focus on with AI-generated content. <clears throat> the second thing to uh, focus is inaccuracies or hallucinations. The AI-generated content says something that's not true, and that's not good. Uh, so I think that AI-assisted content is a good workflow where AI is, is uh, proposing an initial paragraph or a set of text, and then a human's intervening and fact-checking it and then massaging it and making sure that it's useful. Um, but, but that's how I think about AI-generated content. Uh, one last thing on AI-generated content is uh, large language models don't know the different subtopics for the five-year plan example that I described. So they will not cover and have comprehensive content because they don't have that information. And so I still think it's important to do the research to understand the different subtopics that should be on your page and then ask AI to give the answers to those versus asking AI to come up with those different subtopics. And as far as the cost of content in 2023, what does it cost to create like a fantastic piece of content for one of your clients? So we have a, a writing agency 
that, that we've had for several years. And the reason why is because we, uh, we were doing SEO and working with other writers and content agencies. And we found that the quality of the content was pretty poor. And it's just hard to do writing really well uh, for, for a variety of different reasons. So then the, the AI-assisted tools have been around for a few months now. But if you just ask AI to write an article, there's a significant amount of human intervention that you need to have to make it really good. So the AI-assisted content might be 20% cheaper than full human, but we're actually still, the majority of the content, or actually all the content that we're focused on is still purely human-written. We're not doing much of any AI-assisted, and the people who are doing AI-assisted, it's maybe 20%, 30% cost savings. I think that that'll go down over time, but right now we haven't seen a huge shift in uh, purely AI-generated content performing well. There are people who are launching pages with a lot of AI content, but they're not performing really well because they have those problems that I mentioned. Yeah. What do you, my next question was, what do you make of all of the technology companies, some even quite large that have stood up subdomains as a means to test publishing like thousands of AI generated articles all at once? Is that something we definitely should not be doing? I think that it's good to test this stuff. I think that you want to be careful about the magnitude. So if you have a, if you, if you're a publisher and you have a thousand great articles and then you publish 10 AI articles and see what happens and then get data and then iterate, that's fine. If you have a thousand good articles and you publish a hundred thousand articles and they're not good and your engagement is low and your plagiarism score is high and you have all these different problems, then the majority of your site is this questionable content. So if I'm testing stuff, I want to uh, be careful about the magnitude of the test and make sure that the, uh, the percentage of my whole domain that's this test is small, like 10% versus the majority of my site. Yeah, I saw Gary Isles. I always, I'm not sure if I pronounce his name correctly. Um, had an interesting statement in regards to site-wide quality signals on LinkedIn a few weeks back. Um, and he said something to the effect of Google judges the quality of your website as a whole, like whether it's on the subdomain, whether you have a large number of low quality programmatic pages, or if you have a large number of low quality AI generated pages and all of that kind of adds up to like the perceived quality of your site. At least that's how I took his comments. Uh, did you see those comments? And do you agree with them from what you've seen? Yes. And I've tested them and I've seen examples for years where a domain has hundreds of thousands of low quality URLs, and then we remove them and keep the you know 10,000 URLs that are good. And then traffic goes up or bad engagement across domain harms entire domain, including good pages with good engagement. And then you remove those and then the good pages go up. So I've consistently seen these domain wide uh, quality scores around uh, having too many pages with low engagement, too many pages that are thin, have very little text, pages that are duplicate text that are very similar to each other pages that are going after terms that people that are not popular and people are not searching for. And then removal of those helps the rest of the site. Earlier in this conversation, we talked a little bit about getting buy-in for the SEO strategy. And you gave us a couple of examples where we don't want to be wasting engineers time fixing very small bugs that won't actually have an impact on the strategy. I'm guessing that is like one way to like get buy-in is to not like piss off the engineering team. But how else do you work to get buy-in in terms of an SEO strategy across an org? Yeah, I think there's three components. So there's a lot of discussion about velocity and we're believers in velocity. So <clears throat> velocity is the direction, meaning the strategy. The second is the speed. So how fast did you go? 
And then the third is the storytelling or the narrative around this, which is a lot more complicated than other initiatives. So a company is going to be choosing among many different initiatives. And a lot of those initiatives are easy to explain and SEO is hard to explain. So we refer to this as the SEO journey. If I buy an ad, then I will get a return on that ad within a few days and it will be easy to measure. And then I know, should I buy more ads or fewer ads? And that's an easy explanation. For SEO, however, you have to uh, launch something. It starts going traffic. Maybe it takes three months. Then you get traffic. Then the conversion rate's low. Then you need to do conversion rate optimization. And then you need to consider this multi-touch attribution where the the the, the ca uh, camera example about, well, you didn't get a, a conversion in that session, but it's actually still useful. And here's why. That's a way more complex explanation than I bought an ad and I got a sale. So uh, for the direction piece, that's just strategy. So again, select the 5% of things that are actually impactful. Be really good at prioritization. Uh, the second thing is speed. So launch things quickly. A common problem that, we, th that we've observed is you could have a perfect strategy, but maybe you need to create content and then there's the brand team and they want to create content. And then the engineering team is not working on that because they're working on this other thing, all of which are reasonable uh, reasons why you might not launch. But then you're three or six months in and stuff hasn't launched. And then people are asking why you're not getting traffic. And you say, well, that's because you didn't launch anything. And they say, well, maybe you didn't make a very good case for why we should launch these things. So speed is the second thing and getting speed within the first three months and anticipating what's the specific pushback that I'm going to get. I'm going to get brand pushback about this is or is not on, on brand. I'm going to have engineers asking me about, we have this blog over here and we have this other blog over here. How do I think about that? So lining up the solutions to all these different pieces, pieces of pushback to get speed. And then the third is reminding of the journey. So there are different steps in the journey. Three months in, you're going to be getting 50 visits a day and the paid team is going to be getting 10,000 and you're going to need to say SEO takes time. And then six months in, you're getting more traffic, but the conversion rate's not that high because you didn't focus on conversion rate. And then you say, well, we need to now focus on conversion rate and then we get more conversions. So there are these different milestones throughout that SEO journey. And you need to keep repeating over and over again to everyone, where are you on that journey and what are the next steps? And don't conclude too early that things are not working. They will work if we hit these different milestones. So it's those three different things. I love that. I always like to say that SEO and content, it's not really a complicated channel. It's usually just requires you putting in the work and it'll work. This has been such an awesome conversation. And if it's okay with you, I would love to transition to like a very rapid, rapid fire round. Does that sound good? Yes. So my first question I have, and I always get asked like, Nate, how do I hire an SEO agency? And I'm in the business of like selling tools for SEO. So I'm not an agency, but my question to you would be, how do you spot a crappy SEO agency? Or like, what are one, of, one or two of those questions you should ask an SEO agency while you're hiring them? Well, all that matters in hiring an SEO agency is to get conversions and impact. So ask them who they worked with and look at the charts for those projects. You could probably look them up, see when they started and see when they ended, and then ask the people at the company, did you get impact? Nothing else really matters. You mentioned optimizing title tags. How do we optimize a title tag? You take the top URLs on your site and then you click on them. So five-year plan, you click on that. You look at the different keywords that you're ranking for and you look for words and phrases that are not in the content and are not in the title tag. So a five-year plan and template shows up multiple times and add template to the title tag and you'll rank higher for anything related to template. That's also how you can optimize content on your site. Uh, add something about template to that page. 
This has been such a fun conversation and we'll include a link back to the graphite site uh, in the show notes, as well as to a couple of those LinkedIn posts I referenced and to that article from the first round review. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our listeners? No, thank you for having me. This episode of the Optimize Podcast is brought to you by a special sponsor. If you're anything like me, you've probably got a lot of content that's not very well optimized and it can be a total pain in your butt to optimize it and ultimately get it to rank better in search. And that's what positional does. Positional has an incredible tool set for everything from content optimization to technical SEO and planning your editorial calendar. And if you don't know by now, I'm one of the co-founders of Positional and I'd love for you to check it out. 